1: Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Shatran Mall. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Shelley Chan about her book, Diaspora's Homeland, Modern China in the Age of Global Migration, which was published by Duke University Press in 2018. Professor Chan is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Welcome to the podcast, Shelley. Our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up, and how did you become a historian of modern China and East Asia?
0: Sure. Um, thank you, Sharon J. Um, so I'm happy to talk about these. Um, the question of, um, you know, my my background and uh upbringing, that sort of thing is, is, is always hard to answer, but, uh, I guess I can try my best. I've been my, an immigrant my whole life. Um, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, I've lived in, uh, Canada and the U S for, um, as long as a period of time as I was in Hong Kong now. So, um, I guess I've, my life has been uh, about the experiences of, of moving around a lot. Um, and how did I become a historian of China and East Asia? Um, I think it's it's not a straight line. Um, it, it was um, um, uh, kind of um, the, just kind of slowly figuring out, you know, what I wanted to do with my life and what my interests are. And uh, I had had other jobs uh, before deciding to go to grad school. Uh, it all happened in Vancouver. And slowly then I decided to um, pursue uh, a PhD program at UC Santa Cruz and then uh, sort of uh, the, the journey um, then continue from there.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I can imagine how your own experience as a migrant maybe got you interested in writing about uh, the history of Chinese migration. Um, So I would like next like to ask you about this book, um, Diaspora's Homeland. Um, So it is a deeply fascinating transnational history of China. So how did you come to write this book and what do you see as its main arguments and contributions?
0: As for uh, as is uh, the same for um, many uh, authors of their first academic books, mine was also one that was based on my PhD dissertation. Um, but I've also um, done a lot of work and research and thinking after the dissertation. So uh, the book is. Somewhat based on a previous version, but then of of a of a dissertation, but then I I um, also had a chance to think it kind of recast it in in a, a larger kind of chronology of the age of global migration that had been identified by historians such as Adam McEwen who's writing about it, where um, you know he he argues that um Chinese migration should be seen as a global phenomenon just as other kinds of cultural migration at the time. So mm-hmm. um, the age of global migration is definitely something that 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 I was engaging with uh, a lot more than um, when I was a graduate student. Um, so and to see China through it, and the Chinese diaspora and how they interacted with each other became sort of the focus of the book. And the central question that I asked was about uh, how uh, Chinese mass migration, which was about 20 million people moving around at the time, how did that change China? So, so the, the, the that central question sort of drives the, uh, the framework of the book, um, the uh, argument of the book, and so it, it, it just uh, sort of, uh, for me to be looking back on it, it became sort of a dif- different creature than, than what it was as, as a uh, dissertation.
1: Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I noticed as I was looking over your book, um, you, you mentioned that, you know, like, just like the European migration of millions of people, like the Chinese migration was one of these big phenomena. Uh, but it's sort of, you know, like something that's sort of maybe not in our imagination as much. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 so the, the, the point you make about like Chinese migration as being part of that global migration, um, I think that's a major uh, contribution of your book. Um, so, so thank you for that um, so could you tell us a little bit about the research process like what sorts of sources did you use what archives did you visit and what was it like to research for the book
0: mm. um, sources are pretty conventional actually so um, there are state archives in China um, I also did, did part of the library research in, uh, in, in Taiwan I used um, uh, some of the you know British parliamentary papers that's available online uh, for um, part of the book, um, newspapers, so on and so forth. So in terms of sources, I would say it's pretty conventional. But then um, I was trying to connect these sources in different locations and try to make a cohesive argument about that. So I think. Um, that the, the project is probably characterized by these multi-sided, multi-sided um, kind of research. Um, so it, it it I think the, the the challenge is trying to bring them together.
1: Thank you. I, I think that's something I really appreciated about your book that you sort of cast like a wide net and you you know you you uh, use sources from like multiple sites. Um, so I, I think that that sort of uh, what, or I see as something that I really liked uh, about your book as a major um, strength of your book. Um, So reflecting on the title of the book and the introduction, um, it becomes apparent to me that diaspora and homeland are not naturally existing categories, but rather that these categories are co-created by various dynamics. Um, And in this regard, you introduce these concepts of diaspora time and diaspora moment. So could you tell us about both of these concepts and also more generally about the concept of diaspora as you use it in your book? (laughs)
0: sure um i think you know kind of what i found is that um like you said uh, the, the 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 definitions of diaspora and homeland they are inherently unstable and i think um it is the the relationship and the constantly changing uh shapes and forms of diaspora and homeland that fascinate me so in my book i have Been able to show uh, how diaspora was sometimes um, consisting of uh, returnees, um, sometimes very rich people, sometimes intellectuals, colonial colonial intellectuals, uh, or they are the you know the face of it was actually the the women who were in left behind villages. So the 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 kind of the the many faces of. Uh, the Chinese diaspora is actually the the kind of ma- one of its main characteristics. And uh, the homeland is in question here in my book, also changed throughout this century of time that I'm tracking from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century. So um, it's the, the kind of changeability of these two things that that, you know, kind of, point out to me that it's the relationship that is um, quite promising and in, 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 as a window onto larger historical forces and dynamics that shape um, China. So um, I think it, also another thing about diaspora and the Chinese experience is that um, it was really, you know, to, to talk about it and, In Chinese terms, uh, the the word Hua Chao was not invented until the late 19th century. So Mm -hmm. it it gives to us uh, a specific historicity of this relationship as well, um, that it became a source of um, um, wealth or power, opportunity for the Chinese state that was information itself was uh, something new and characteristic of uh, the modern era. So so I think a, a combination of all of these things um, you know kind of drew my attention to how diaspora functioned in Chinese history and how much it can tell us about Chinese history, the formation of China in a global system. and that diaspora itself uh, has been approached quite broadly as uh, a spatial concept as a collection of uh, dispersed, communities Um, in thinking it through Chinese history. I think I've learned that diaspora could also be understood as a temporal phenomenon, Mm -hmm. uh, a set of fragmented temporalities, um, that it was constantly being um, adapted to or subordinated to national time. So um, I think, there's that the spatial dimension is interesting and is often often uh, have had more attention. The temporal dimension of diaspora, that it's possible to talk about diaspora time, diaspora moments. It's also a way to recognize diaspora as a historical force. is is transformative. It's not derivative, um, and and it's the the kind of the the it, the ways that some it sometimes resists national chronology, national territory mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that, that really interests me.
1: Thank you. Uh, I th- yeah, I, I think uh, that's uh, um, um, something that really stood out to be about your book is about the shift from just thinking about sp- it's thinking about diaspora or like migration just in terms of space to thinking about it in terms of time or temporality. Um, uh, so I think, yeah, I think this is a, this is a very, um, valuable concept that maybe other scholars can build on, um, uh, in, in studying the different migratory, um, flows. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: so, um, so I'd like to now look go go, go go into the chapters um, of the book because you investigate or you you sort of present like different diaspora moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in chapter one, you explore the diaspora moment of the late nineteenth century lifting of the ban on overseas emigration by the Qing dynasty um, authorities, and you offer a reinterpretation um, of this imperial edict. Um, so. What's How do you sort of uh, think about this moment differently, uh, maybe from other historians? Um, and how did China and Chinese migration change during this period? Why is this um, an especially notable diaspora moment in the constituting of China within the modern international order?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, what I try to do in that opening chapter is to revisit something that has been um, misunderstood, which is the 1893 lifting of the ban on Chinese emigration was often um, you know, uh, thought of as something rather late or rather late and, and uh, unconsequ- inconsequential uh, 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 move that was taken by the Qing state to finally uh, recognize the value of Chinese emigration. So I, uh, surprisingly, when I went to look at, you know, the documents that actually, or the, the, the uh, memorials that were submitted re- in regard to that, was that it was actually a, 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 a kind of a, a proclamation, proclamation to um, welcome return migration um, of, of uh, Chinese that has settled abroad. Um, and the memorial also um, that was submitted by this Chinese official also talks about a kind of a trajectory that led him to this request he's made to the court. And that is um, you know, the, 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 the whole kind of uh, sweep of changes that happened from the middle of the 19th century with the Opium Wars, and especially with the indentured labor trade uh, that the chainstay had had to deal with. And so I, it I brought to me the importance of Cooley migration, right? Mm-hmm. And I use that with the quote-unquote Cooley. Um, and there's a huge uh, literature on indentured coolie migration, um, especially about how they shaped... Um, uh, the u s and the Caribbean uh Cuba Peru particularly so uh, and, and that had to do with um discussions conversation about slavery and and I think not a lot of that was actually brought to bear on uh, modern Chinese history so it, once again if we turn the kind of analytical lens back onto China, asking how Chinese migration changed China instead of just changing the places uh, that migration touched, then we we are able to kind of open the door to, to get this restructuring um, that China itself politically was going through. And that is to have to deal with Indenture migration, uh, the abuses of the trade, the exploitation, um, and the 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 urgent needs to control it, and so it ushered in a whole set of uh, conceptions and relationships that the chains they had to navigate with the treaty system, with its own still uh, at the time operating tribute system. So I think I used that as a, a kind of a moment to look to look at how the diaspora, if at this time it looked like it was the Kuli migration that that was um, asserting uh, its prominence, and or at least the urgency to address. Then it created a crisis where the chain state had to respond and had to um, uh, find a way to control it. So. So that to me wasn't the perfect example of how, you know, that might be one of the earliest diaspora moments that that had to do with workers, laborers, uh, rather mm-hmm. than merchants, which dominated the scholarship of on Chinese migration. So, so all of that, I think it, it, um, I was trying to make an intervention into kind of dominant ways in which coolie migration was studied, um, all that. Chinese migration itself was studied. So to bring together labor, international relations, uh, the chain states on evolution in the international system. So what's, what's the purpose of that chapter?
1: Thank you for that. Um a, a follow-up thought or question that I had was um that was this coolie migration like different from the f- kinds of migration that had occurred from southern China before the 19th century?
0: Mhm. Uh I have to acknowledge that there there are other streams of indentured labor mm-hmm. uh, migration especially to um the Dutch East Indies at the time. But it was the the cooling migration that's going to Latin America that has caught most of our attention, and also, of course, um, the cooling migration from uh, South Asia mm-hmm. was also an, um, an, another important phenomenon. So they they all happened around the same time. But to the Qing state, it appeared to me from you know these documents I was reading that it was uh, Latin America and then the international relations that it had to deal with, with Cuba and Peru, that, um, that caught most of their, um, you know, energies and attention.
1: Thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, the, the lens of migration sort of provides a different orientation to thinking about how, um, Qing China had to deal with, um, uh, the, the coming of Euro-American powers and the coming of the global mm-hmm. capitalist system at that time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see um, the, the significance of this bo- this chapter um, of your book. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also p- perhaps I was, uh, was listening to you, to your response, is that the the it was kind of the, the discussion around Indentured Chinese labor was kind of on the coattails of slavery, of mm-hmm. of African peoples, enslavement of African peop, uh, peoples, and a subsequent, um, you know, slowing down of that uh, trade. So, so you know, because of that, it also caught a lot more international attention because Chinese, and I say South Asian, uh, uh, indentured labor also was was brought in to replace uh, African mm-hmm. slaves. Mm-hmm. So in that way, then the, the international press became, you know, kind of really engaged and really involved in commenting on this new phenomenon. So so in a way it was not just the efforts of the Qing Chinese state, but other players on this international stage and, and the the kind of attention that was kind of uneven across the board. Uh, that, that made Chinese labor migration and uh, indentured cooling migration uh, a, a far more important issue than some of the other um, uh, phenomena and, 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 and places.
1: Thank you. Um, So in chapter two, uh, you turn your attention to some of these scholars at Shanghai's Jinan University. um, And what sort of Mm -hmm. interested me was that uh, they sort of drew on colonial, like Western and Japanese colonial discourses and sort of saw Chinese Mm -hmm. emigrant communities in Southeast Asia as part of an imagined Chinese colonial empire. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about these scholars um, and why you consider this to be another diaspora moment? Yeah, um, I think
0: um, most importantly, I wanted to show that the attention that was given to uh, Chinese in the South Seas, Nanyang, uh, was built on um, a kind of awareness of Japan, you know, and and its Mm -hmm. imperial ambitions in Asia. So these intellectuals that I'm studying that produce a vast amount of knowledge about Chinese in colonial Southeast Asia, uh, they were educated in Japan. Uh, They identify with a lot of the colonial categories and and conceptions of understanding of, um, you know, frontiers uh, and, and oceanic spaces as pretty much empty and waiting for exploitation and exploration. All of that, um, they, they were taking it from uh, uh, Japanese concepts and, and Japanese studies um, of Chinese in the South Seas. So there's a, there's a very um, um, close relationship, I think, between these intellectuals who were sponsored by the KMT state to study uh, uh, the Chinese in the South Seas, as with their own backgrounds of being educated and being so conversant with uh, Japanese colonial knowledge, as well as European colonial knowledge about migration, about uh, these tropical areas, that shape their view of, you know, the sort of dev- advice and and insights they could. They are drawing for on behalf of the Chinese state um, in Nanjing. So, so I think in this particular diaspora moment, as I called it, um, it, it opens up another world, like kind of the, the intellectual universe that was also shaping the way uh, Chinese state intellectuals were, were looking at uh, these Chinese settlements south of them. To see them as part of this unfulfilled, incomplete empire that China did not have. Um, so, so, so. But in a way, it was so important for to its future status as as a nation state. So, um, so that's that's kind of a, a diaspora moment in which it inspired uh, certain types of colonial, colonially based. Uh, settler colonialism uh, ideologies uh, that w- was kind of, you know, emanating from all that interest um, in, in pr- publica- publication activities and, um, and intellectual research about the Chinese in colonial Southeast Asia.
1: That's very intriguing to hear um, that they, they were they, that um, the, just like you know like a lot of aspects of modernity in uh, or, 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 or in China sort of came mediated through Japan. That this was another sort of discourse, like the colonial discourse or settler colonial discourse, that that was something else that was sort of came to these Chinese intellectuals through mm-hmm. uh, the example of um, Japan. Like that, that that's really um, fascinating hmm oh.
0: Yeah, it really um none of this developed uh, you know, kind of in a vacuum that in isolation of just how China looked at uh Chinese settlements in Southeast Asia, but really, you know, kind of the they they, they were um drawing on other types of knowledge that was circulating and was very active, very dominant um in the region. So um so that's an example of also how an interest in diaspora was also an interest in uh, China's place in 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 the region and in the broader world.
1: Thank you. Um, so in the next chapter, you pay attention to uh, a, a, a member of the Chinese diaspora, uh, to a British-educated Chinese Singaporean named Lim Boon Keng, who served as president of Amoy University and someone who was like dedicated to the revival of Confucianism. Um, and he was someone who got into conflict uh, with the Chinese writer Lu Xun. Um, so could you tell us about this individual, um, his life and career, his ideas, and how you think of his his career as sort of another diaspora moment?
0: Yes, of course. Um, I think... You know, kind of, he is definitely claimed in in very recent decades to be a Singaporean. But I think I was trying to look at him as a colonial intele- intellectual and a creolized intellectual. Um, you know, kind of a group that that was part of what's known as the Baba um, in in the Malay world. That they came from a, a genealogy of Chinese Malay intermarriages. Um, a lot of them had close ties with the colonial state. Um, they were groomed as part of the elite, um, and they went to pre- prestigious educational institutions at in the UK. Um, and and but their their ambitions were also kind of frustrated uh, by the fact that um, they were not valued uh, in the way that they felt deserved in uh, the colonial places like, like Singapore or the Strait settlements. So China became a field of opportunity to a lot of these indiv- individuals who were um, given opportunities to uh, rise very high and, and, and sort of as, a, as an intellectual, but also um, came up against, you know, racism and other types of colonial condition, uh, that that marked them as uh, inferior in a in a racial hierarchy. So there's plenty of examples, say from China or, or um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I should say from the U.S., for example, of uh, you know kind of local-born generation of uh, Japanese or Chinese ancestry were uh, similarly uh, facing the kind of limitations that, that 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 they encountered, right? As as racialized. Uh, individuals so here's a different example you know kind of from um, the part of the straight settlements Um, and so I think this is also a a kind of a revisiting of of an episode that's also been well written and well explored in in the scholarship uh, about uh, Lim's uh, clash with Lu Xun um, it it became one of the legends that's often talked about, um, and I think my 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 goal there is not to, just to rehash the debates um, of somebody encountering kind of May Fourth radicalism as uh, embodied in Lu Xun, but also to kind of highlight uh, Lim's own um, colonial subjectivity um, that shaped his outlook um, on his participation um, in China's modernization. So, and then another way to look at it is that because there's so many Confucian revivalisms, you know, in the course of Chinese history, one could start very, very early from, say, the Song Dynasty, and it had been continuous since that there had been many kinds of Confucianisms. And so, a diasporic kind looks like, you know, the the kind that I was I was writing about in mm-hmm. this chapter. So I think it belongs to part of that conversation of a kind of Confucian revivalisms um, as one that came from abroad. Also, so so I I was trying to address that with kind of as also part of a, a kind of great interest in religions in mm-hmm. a colonial setting in in, in Southeast Asia that his interest in Confucianism was uh, was not just to be interpreted through um, May 4th radicalism, but also through, you know, something that's rooted in a colonial setting in Southeast Asia um, that defined Confucianism as a type of religion. And he's also mm-hmm. reacting and resisting that. So... Um, i guess in in a nutshell there's just a lot to be said um if we um, about about lim even though we seem to know a lot about him already that um that the very fact of his colonial background um shaped the way he thought about china and that should be taken mm-hmm. more seriously and simply as just someone who um uh, um, just, just uh, becoming attached to China almost because of his ethnicity. So I think I'm, I'm trying to move away from that
1: thank you that that is really fascinating uh, to think about like i mean i think other scholars have, are also looking at the uh, the, len- the the lens of religion and sort of how like diasporic chinese might have an influence on uh, religion in china um, so i mean this is this is a very this is very fascinating to hear about lim and about the reinterpretation that you offer about his Um, life and career and his effort at diasporic Confucian revivalism. So um, in the next chapter, you turn your uh, attention to gender and to uh, women and to the women who are left behind. Um, And this is also sort of at a a different moment in history when the People's Republic of uh, China was established. Um, so how was the Communist Party state in its early years in the 1950s? How was it influenced by the impact of mass migration? And what does this tell us about the early years of the People's Republic of China? And what, 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 uh, how does focusing on women um, help us think about uh, Chinese migration?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the radical transformations that uh, the, the early PRC, PRC state uh, sought to bring to china was was uh, um, an interesting moment to look at because then in so many different kinds of scholarship we've seen you know how they encountered the reality on the ground and how they then had to adapt to it of the things that they had not thought about and china was really a big place and and at this time trying to uh, liberate and incorporate South China into its territory brought uh, a similar kind of challenges and difficulties like it was elsewhere. So, in these places, they're both uh, urban and rural migration was a fact of life that, you know, um, one in every five to six uh, families in the province of Guangdong uh, had someone who's abroad. And, and so it, it really um, was something that permeated, you know, kind of the living a kind of transnational life where you uh, deeply connected with someone far away. Um, and they might send, send somebody home or they might not even be able to do so. But then um, living in a place where for these women, they might be, they might be the heads of the households. They might have to contend with the the some of the shortfalls of remittances that they were expecting from their husbands, um, that sort of thing. You know, characterized life. And then how the villages were organized around uh, this phenomenon was something that that was very interesting and 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 deeply traveling, traveling to the uh, communist party state that was trying to. Mm-hmm. Incorporate this area into its own larger vision of social construction. That you have such um, a kind of a gendered reality where you have lots of women that were, you know, sort of looked like they were abandoned, uh, looked like they they never did anything productive in their lives and just waiting to be supported by uh, uh, you know money sent home. From men abroad,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and also the fact that some of the families looked like they were much better off than others, and none of them really pursue farming as their main uh, household economic activity. Um, so all of that came up against and quite opposite to the kind of rural imaginary or the division of labor or the. The um, uh, um, conjugal family, you know, as a preferred kind of modern form of family, all of that seemed to mark this area as so um, deviant and extreme, and had to be reformed so that some sort of productivity and gender equality could be guaranteed. So. And so I, I really enjoyed writing um, this chapter about these villages filled with m- women, women who looked like they were really sad and trapped in these marriages and, and the, the effort by the state to want to rescue them, um, that you know, uh, created you know, a lot of conflicts and, and um, consequences that, that, uh, that the state was not expecting you know, they had not expected some of these women would actually then go divorce their husbands, uh, um, you know, kind of in, in a moment's notice. And and that uh, upset um, the local dynamics mm-hmm. where you have local officials and mothers-in-laws and, you know, very upset by uh, the all, all, all of these, um, you know, kind of, Changes and and then also the, you know these women were then told to also um, strive for or um, try to bring you know have their husbands bring more income more remittances, so that they could contribute contribute those to uh, state projects and that really backfired so so I think in a way that the state was at the beginning, um, pretty uh, clueless about, you know, kind of local reality, and their interventions uh, created, um, you know, lots of conflicts and tensions. Um, and and then the, the the chapter that I was following is is uh, you know also a, a kind of interrelated phenomenon. It's also about the same area, but then you have uh, a return phenomenon of um, people who were fleeing anti-Chinese movements mm-hmm. in Southeast Asia, and some of them are quite wealthy, some of them were not at all. Um, and so the state was also scrambling to um, help them, resettle them, um, and turn them into social subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the premise that these people were politically suspect and and there needs to be a process to reintegrate them. And so the the speed and the um, format of which it should happen becomes a source of uh, great anxieties. Um, And as China itself was changing rapidly during the 50s and 60s, you know the 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 act of balancing between all of these agendas becomes more and more difficult. So so to me, these two chapters were also good examples of showing how the diaspora was kind of creating um, tensions and crises and. Um, you know, opportunities to act for the state that itself was going through a lot of change. Um, so, so, so in in similar ways as in the previous chapters, uh, they show me there are kind of uh, to me a, a window, a portal to understand how um, the nation. Um, is trying to assimilate all these different temporalities and spatialities brought mm-hmm. by a diaspora itself, has many facets, uh, lots of contradictions within it. And so the balancing uh, kind of uh, act um, becomes the kind of the thread of all, all my chapters.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the points you m- make um, in in your book is that the lens of diaspora helps to think of Chinese history as being more fragmented and more multifaceted or multi layered. Um, so, I mean, the stories of these women and the story of um, uh, the Chinese communist state sort of. Challenges with sort of incorporating the southern Ch- Chinese uh, regions within their within the People's Republic of China, like um, uh, and within their project of socialism. Um, this sort of really brings home uh, that that point. Um, and, and as you 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 also answered uh, what was going to be my next question about the Gui or the returned overseas Chinese migrants and sort of the People's Republic of. Uh, their their movement back from anti anti Chinese and anti um, anti Chinese pogroms and so on back to mm-hmm. um, China. So uh, so th- that's, thank you for sharing that.
0: Yeah yeah, and I think you you're absolutely right just now about all these um, you know kind of different elements and um, and uh, yeah the the the, the returnees. Themselves was a very um, heterogeneous group socially mm-hmm. and economically, and and so it's also really confounding to the state about what to how to deal with them, mm-hmm. and and so instead of marking them as, you know, kind of um, a, a, or, or giving them the sort of class label that they were giving everybody um, domestically they were somewhat segregated, isolated as this group that all came from abroad, no matter uh, who they are, uh, what their backgrounds were. Um, so, so to, to sound, kind of to consolidate their resources and their attentions, I guess. But slowly they discover, you know, because of the, the different types of resources they, they require of the state are quite different um, They they were some the the, the poorer ones were put on farms where they were asked to become farmers and a lot of these people came from urban areas and never had any agricultural experience and it came you know as a huge disappointment to these people because they were expecting um, to 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 be treated a lot better instead of mm-hmm. being asked to produce their own food for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there, there's this other group that has received much better treatment on the service, where they were invited to buy private housing in a socialist country. Um, that they, 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 were given a set of privileges um, that, nonetheless, is is contingent. Um, that they, they, that 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 also kind of made them, um, you know, kind of pretty precarious at a time when high socialism. Uh, uh, happened and that they looked like that they were a, a kind of holdover group who were enjoying all these privileges and living in such luxurious uh, uh, conditions um, to be a kind of threat that um, uh, that would contaminate China um, the rest of China as well so th- so th- the, the different kinds of treatments show to me, you know, kind of the different um, stages of socialism that mm-hmm. was happening, um, and then also how a diaspora returnee group were constantly in the middle of it. That um, they they were marked off as not quite domestic. Um, they, 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 they were uh, identified as uh, groups that came from abroad and would require a certain process of re-education, reform, reintegration. Uh, but it only worked when, you know, the state was willing to accommodate any kind of differences or complications that bring when you try to incorporate different groups and different pieces um, of socialism and be willing to stay flexible. So once that flexibility and willingness to accommodate is gone and evaporate, evaporated by the time of high socialism, that everyone was urged to become socialists. right now, that, that the, that these groups that had been marked off and have been singled out were then the ones that would suffer the most.
1: Thank you. Um, Actually, I have a follow up question related to that, um, that did did some of these returnees or did the Chinese migrant networks, did they have any influence or did they in any way shape China's transition from um, Maoist socialism to um, what what we call like socialism with Chinese characteristics or neoliberalism or capitalism?
0: Sure. Sure. I think even in the early 1950s, um, I think the Das was very much welcomed and seen as a positive force that could help China's uh, construction of socialism. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it, it really, this, you, you, you trace that relationship, really show you actually something that China itself was going through right, instead of what the diaspora itself was kind mm-hmm. of um, being this recalcitrant actor. So, so, so that really go through a phase of kind of like some openness and some willingness to accommodate. And then it, it, you know when socialism, socialism kicked into high gear, the, the, that room to, to negotiate disappeared. And so when, when high socialism came back down, Um, we see another phase of the relationship and that really had to do with China's transformations. Um, That, you know, once again, you know, the diaspora was seen as as, uh, uh, um, a kind of resource rather than a threat.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: So I think that gives us another way to look at um, that relationship and then also... um, the, the reconnections that uh, the diaspora participated also kind of it has been quite historical that it had happened before. Um, it seems like sometimes we're moving on a spectrum rather than um, just kind of going from one kind of change to another without any type of pattern. So, so I think you know, studying diaspora gives us a way to think long historically and also interregionally. Mm-hmm. So even though I think you can also do diaspora in, in very focused and delimited ways that is enlightening, But I think the book chooses to go in a direction where it wants to show something broad and not just relevant to Small parts of China or small groups of Chinese people, but it's really a method to think in long historical, large scale terms, and to bring these large scale processes uh, to light. So I think um, you know that's a uh, it's really challenging to write a book that covers a long a long period mm-hmm. of time, like a, more than a century and also not to limit myself to any location I I need to then uh, learn about, um, but actually focus on the issue and the conflict or the um, crisis. So I think it, the book has kind of, in a way, dragged me to places um, that then I discover I have to know something about. And that has been both... Um, laborious but also rewarding.
1: Thank you. Um, so, in the conclusion, you reflect on the substantial changes in China since the 1970s uh, as the country has reopened to the world and to the global capitalist system, and it's been restructured uh, by neoliberalism. And you have like new flows of Ch- Chinese migration to all parts of the world uh, from the People's Republic of China in the last 30 to 40 years. Um, so, can we consider this to be um, another diaspora moment?
0: Yeah, I think it, there's that possibility. So I think I'm um, offering, you know, kind of the, the concept as, as um, possibly to be explored. So I've only kind of observed some of the changes and uh, more recently with Chinese migration, I try to read uh, as much as possible. But I think, um, you know, but I have not, Written and and do serious research about it, but it, so in a way I'm I'm uh, it's, I, I'm trying to be more suggestive in the in my conclusion and saying that it 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 could potentially be a way for us to think about these um, broad changes and broad um, connections that 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 intersects with other kinds of temporalities and spatialities. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's that's something I, I, I try to kind of convey, and, and also um, just leave it out as a as a possibility for others to look at.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in your conclusion, you sort of indicate or you open up avenues uh, for future scholars of Chinese migration to explore, um, because I think this is something that it's still evolving now with uh, new flows of migration, for example, from Hong Kong, um, and um, and 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 you know, like the dynamics amongst the People's Republic of China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Chinese migrant communities. It, we'll have to see how um, these how how it sort of evolves in the future. But hopefully, uh, news other scholars can build on your book um, to to research and write on these topics.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think. Um, the part where I kind of gesture toward China, Hong Kong, Taiwan is to, um, I guess, call attention to migration as this, this, uh, one kind of connection we, we can think about when it comes of, you know, these three places, Do, do they, you know, does it make sense to actually consider them as, as, uh, uh, one connective phenomenon. And I think the history and legacies of migration could be one of the examples um, that, that there were flows um, between these places. And like you said, um, you know, kind of the, the current um, maybe attention to the Hong Kong diaspora mm-hmm. is also then signals possibly another diaspora moment where, you um, you know, previously there is it received no attention, and people do not identify necessarily with with um, themselves being part of a Hong Kong diaspora. But suddenly, it's been in the news. So, so I think it 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 then uh, has some similarities to how I see diaspora, where it's not constantly active; it's it's it disappears, reappears, um, and when it appears, then it is. It offers us an opportunity to look at what is happening. Where were some of these um, uh, uh, conflicts and fault lines uh, that mm-hmm. were not visible and now becoming really visible and really contentious? So, so it's quite true, you know. If you take the example of the Hong Kong diaspora, that you know, kind of just back a few years ago, nobody was. Was actually talking about it or
1: mm-hmm.
0: bringing it up, so so I think there is something there, and 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 even though, um, you know, we may it may not make sense to always talk of a a Chinese diaspora. Certainly, that does not exist as a singular phenomenon. But it, it, you know, talking about Chinese identity in diasporic ways is then to recognize how a Chinese identity uh, is sometimes unified and sometimes really falling apart. Mm-hmm. And it makes more sense to then talk about a Taiwan diaspora, a Hong Kong diaspora, or a Hakka diaspora, a Hokkien diaspora, a Cantonese diaspora. Um, so so I think it's that um, dynamic of integration, disintegration that that really stands out. And, uh, and I think it merits uh, our analysis.
1: Thank you. Um, I mean, another, th- another thought I had about that was that even we, we, we shouldn't think of like Chinese diaspora or Chinese immigrants as sort of uh, hom- homogeneous or sort of cohesive um, entity, because there, there are so many different tensions There's so many different the disagreements that might exist, for example, about whether it is like those who are in favor of the People's Republic of China and those who might be like critical mm-hmm. of it and so on. Um, and like these, these tensions will probably keep um, existing uh, wherever um, the Chinese immigrant community exists. And of course, as you mentioned, like there's so many different um, uh, subgroups or different groups um, who, who might not see things um, the same way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think in general, we tend to define a diaspora by their ethnicity and it contains its own problems. It It's the same way we could say China is a huge place too, is it doesn't make sense to talk of a single China. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it does, sometimes, lots of times it doesn't. And I think we should apply the same wisdom to diaspora as well, that, that what um should be central to our understanding is of its uh plurality and and multi kind of layeredness and um you know kind of there there have been many waves of migration and and then also it's about pos- positionality rather than ethnicity um to be situated outside of an imagined or real homeland uh marks the condition of diaspora. And that recognition is not always there or always necessary. So, so I think being very sensitive to these things, um, temporally and spatially, um, makes a lot of difference. Um, but but it still remains a very useful device, I think, as a category of analysis to think about integration, disintegration, uh, broad transformations that's long historical and also. Cross-regional, intercultural. Uh, so, to me, diaspora is a tool that we should learn to use wisely and intelligently um, to not uh, flat out or uh, flatten uh, the differences and contradictions within it, uh, and and uh, but you know, kind of as a as a lens to help us see better.
1: Thank you. Um, And thank you so much, uh, Shelley, for taking so much time uh, to talk to me today um, about your book. Um, So before we end, um, I wanted to ask you, what are you working on right now? Yeah, I'm
0: I'm working on a, a new project about the Nanyang. So it actually grew out of chapter two. Of my book, and um, yeah. as I was researching and writing about it, I discovered there's still a lot more, and then um, intellectual discourses about the Nanyang, and and I got interested in the kind of the the existence of the Nanyang as a lived place, as a real place that, mm-hmm. that that does not only exist in in books, but people would say, you know they're going to Nanyang, they're coming back from Nanyang or they're living in the Nanyang. Mm-hmm. So so it became very interesting to me, you know, what did they mean um actually. and 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 also to kind of push against the grain of uh, how we normally um, like to translate. The Nanyang into Southeast Asia, so ironically, turning a sea region into a landmass. So um, and so, what got lost if we if we do that uh, as a shorthand that the Nanyang is Southeast Asia, and and so the the maritime and diaspora aspects of this social geography is is the the kind of the what's motivating me now in in kind of trying to trying to explain its rise as a region and it's also its disappearance uh, um in in the second half of the twentieth century where uh the it, it was the Nanyang was got replaced by by um um Southeast Asia as a as a, a spatial category um, that was supposed to be part of a different world order. So so I'm I'm looking at Sort of the rise and disappearance of the Nanyang as this dynamic region, um, uh, uh, economically, socially, and politically. Um, There's so many things that are called the Nanyang. They like had the word on the name Nanyang in, in their, um, uh, uh, in in the titles or in businesses, uh, uh, or schools, universities. Um, products, uh, tobacco, for example, uh, cultural aesthetics, um, even there was once a Nanyang Communist Party. Oh. So um, so I, I'm investigating and kind of looking at how diaspora came to, I mean I mean so the Nanyang came to symbolize a whole range of social meanings and contradictions. So as a way to bring together China and Southeast Asia in a in, in a transregional frame. So, so to explain, I guess, in, in simple terms, explain China and Southeast Asia through the rise of Nanyang.
1: Thank you so much. That sounds like a really fascinating project. Um, and I look forward to um, reading more about it. Um, so, so thank you again, and I hope you have a good evening. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Sharon Jay. I you. enjoyed this very much. Thank Thanks. you.